Boom. Fuck it. We'll do it live. WNBC. That's how we always start. We are here, not live, recorded, but with Zoya Stage. Yeah. I said it right. I'm so happy. <laughs> it's pathetic. Somebody will tell me, like, this guy, we had Mike Caspio on, and I asked him before the show, what should I call you, Mike, Michael? He's like, Mike. We start the show. We're here with Michael. God damn it. It's like, just immediately fuck it up. Author of Baby Teeth, bestseller Baby Teeth, Wonderland, upcoming, what is it, August 14th? Is that right? Or? August 17th. God damn it. See, I'm so bad at this. August 17th, her next novel, Getaway. Not the getaway like I tweeted because I fuck everything up. This right here, this is cool. This is an ARC copy you actually sent me. I don't know if you even remember you sent me one. I, I do remember, yep. Autographed. Um, my wife did read this on vacation. It's a little more beat up than I would like, but I like my books used, dog-eared, loved, you know. That's the way they should be. Honored to have one of those. Can't wait to see how Hollywood fucks up baby teeth. Oh, my God. I don't know how much you want to get oh into that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I've read the screenplay. So, yeah, that's a whole thing unto itself. Right. I don't know if you really want to talk about that, but Do we? I could tell you exactly how they're going to fuck it up if you really want to know. Let's get into that later. For, okay. Uh, to start, <laughs> this is an episode of Hard Out, my favorite movie, and we're here to talk about Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Your all-time favorite flick, Blade Runner. It's a fucking great pick. Yes, it is. It's a good one. Has this been your favorite movie since you saw it? Was it as a kid, or is this something later in life that came to be your favorite? No, it's pretty much been my favorite since I saw it, and it's the movie I've seen the most times. Like, I tend not to be a person who re-watches a lot of films or rereads a lot of books, but I've seen Blade Runner at least 25 times, so... Oh, shit. But I think yeah, Ridley Scott, really see it. he's probably put out 25 cuts of it, so no shit you've <laughs> seen each cut that right exactly yeah uh did you see it in the theater when it was originally out i think so i re i have a memory of seeing it in the theater so i don't know if some point it was re-released in the theater it was in the 90s yeah i, I feel like that's the case for me too yeah they put it I was up struggling I've, with that <clears throat> yeah i've definitely seen it in the theater i think i originally saw it in the theater because that's something like I think I went to see it like with my mom, possibly my dad, too, because we used to go see a lot of movies and all different kinds of movies. That's cool. And I know my mom loved that, too. So I think, yeah, we probably did originally see whatever the original release version was. I know it's different than later ones. That we you saw remember, that. Jay, if we saw it in the theater originally? I don't, I don't think, think we so. saw it in the theater. I think we I caught think it maybe in the 90s too, the second time. It might have been in the 80s when we had we grew up pretty broke in dc kind of in the projects but we'd get that free month of promotional hbo and showtime once in a while and we would just sit on that right. shit all day that's probably where we night. caught it originally yeah. and we we're huge um, harrison ford fans obviously not only because of han solo and indiana jones but when i was like eight my favorite movie was witness so we were watching pretty yeah, grown-up shit movie. too as kids you know yeah yeah it was great been... honestly growing up when at the time that i did because my parents didn't delineate between kids films and adult films we saw same, everything yeah, same. Yeah. so it's i got way. a seven-year-old now and it's a battle with my wife <laughs> she grew up like not allowed to watch the simpsons and shit one of those houses you know and i grew up watching the exorcist and freddy krueger at six years old so it's a bit <laughs> of a the battle exorcist, the exorcist was the one film i was not allowed to watch as a child that yeah. was the one the crucifix and all, you know, it's a little over the top uh, for kids. <laughs> fuck me, fuck me. Right. And well, uh, with my kid too, it's like, I'm not pushing stuff on him because I did have like recurring fucking Freddy Krueger nightmares mm -hmm. as a kid and shit. And it maybe gave me some of the anxiety I suffered from. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I'm not pushing it on him and he doesn't seem quite ready for that stuff yet anyway. But uh, I can't wait till he's ready to watch all these great old movies with me, you know? But this must have been amazing to see in the theater back then in 82 or whatever it was. Like, just yeah. the atmosphere and the sets and all that shit. It's fucking wild. I mean, and that's really what drew me into the movie initially was that fully immersive experience of the mm -hmm. cinematography and the music and the sound. I mean, it was like being transported into a dream. Yeah. Um, and I think that's 
largely why, you know, it gets categorized as my favorite film. I mean, I've seen thousands mm -hmm. of films and there's thousands of other films that I really love, but none have transported me into a dream the way that one did. Yeah. So. Right. And it's a tinge to as a nightmare. You know, just yeah. the acid rain dystopic. LA and dystopic yeah. and which is funny when I was researching this, you know, knowing we would be talking about it, I saw it was set in 2019. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not too far off, but well, that actually got me 2020 might have been more accurate. Well, that whole Steve Paker thing or whatever that we talk about sometimes where things are actually as bad as we think they are right now, better than ever. If you look at history and how shitty human life has yeah. been throughout history, that we have this predilection to look at the future with this doomsday lens. Mm -hmm. So the way they looked at 2019 when this was made in the early eighties was so doomsday and apocalyptic yeah, that I wonder if in, yeah, how similar. we feel in 20 or 30 years, half of the East coast is going to be underwater and this and that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder if it's Meanwhile, just going to be pretty much the same. Yeah. Maybe the deserts will, um, uh, we actually see some of that. They're repopulating deserts with plant life that might account for some of that. Maybe it'll balance out a little bit. I'm just saying it won't be as bad as we think in 20 or 30 years. Same as Blade Runner kind of looked at it that way, but who knows? Yeah. I who tend knows? to feel that way, that it'll be better than we think. It won't be quite as to stop. I hope, but... <laughs> like, eventually we'll get fusion mastered and, you know, then we won't be fighting over oil and all that bullshit. And if everyone's lives improve enough... <laughs> Her face you know. is like, it's going to be fucked. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, don't I, was faith. I don't have that much faith in humanity because I know human beings can come up with incredible scientific and creative advances. I know we can come up with solutions to every problem that we face, but there will always be a faction of society that will not allow it to be implemented. So Absolutely. I'm not with you on that. Yeah. We're nihilists and pessimists, honestly. I'm just saying that occurred to me as I watched the movie that it's not nearly as fucked up as they thought it would be. Yeah. And I wonder if in the future right. it won't be as bad as we think it will be. I guess we'll see. Yeah. And not only that humans <laughs> would fix our own problems, I think we'll create the problems, but I don't know. It's, uh, I mean, maybe we'll eliminate ourselves or a solar flare will knock out technology and all this. Shit. Who knows? We could be truly. It could be like the road or something, Cormac McCarthy style, you know, who knows? Yeah. Um, learn to hunt, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, what are you going to, they say we have like three days if the dollar drops, like three days of water until there's like fights over fresh water and shit, you know? So I don't know. We're on the brink of it almost at all times. And our society is just a house of cards separating us from post-apocalypse, you know? It is true. I mean, we saw a little bit of it during the pandemic and everybody goes hoarding the toilet paper as their first yep. priority for survival. It's pretty funny. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> I read a theory that, that that kind of explains that, that it's about size of the product, that you can only fit so many yeah, packs of toilet paper. So inventory. if 20 are gone, it looks like all the toilet paper is gone. So uh -huh. I better buy toilet paper, you know, <laughs> but if it was toothpaste, there's so many small ones that but it's just, it's funny when you see the psychology of people in a, what do we call that? Yeah, for sure. Shortage mindset or what are we, we always talk about this, Chris. Oh, scarcity. Scarcity mindset. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's the thing that, yeah, I'm not disagreeing that humanity is shitty and has that scarcity mindset and everything, but I, I feel optimistic about technology saving us to some degree. That's, that's where I'm trying to put my, my money. Um, that, like as Jay was speaking to like the better angels of our nature, you know, uh, premise that, you know, even though it looks bad or looks like it's going to get horrible, even worse, that when you look back through history, we have greatly improved over medieval to the dark ages, the inquisitions, all those sorts of things that slowly, I, th I feel like we're in the last, the very end of the dark age. It's never ended yet. We're still in this, like where we, we have to kind of, you know, it, uh, just buck the old like modes of belief and everything and over time it's just this all going to look antiquated and we will progressively get more humanist as a species but i don't know maybe yeah evolutionary biology maybe not i mean it's it's possible well, i just feel right now we're under such a ticking clock in terms of environmental collapse mm -hmm. that it's like can we get people to evolve philosophically soon enough to prevent something horrible and irreparable from happening to the earth. So 
that's really, that's yeah. really, and it's what's so frustrating is I know that the majority of people have the right intentions and would want to do what's right for the world, but we're so manacled to this tiny percentage of people who control all of the wealth. Right. And, and special interests that, you know, yeah. big oil, et cetera. To Chris's yeah. point, though, it's almost like you don't have to, even if most of the people were against it, technology could still save you. Even if people never got on board, we could still create a system of eating up carbon in the atmosphere, et cetera. You know what I mean? So Yeah, I feel like when, when things get desperate enough, we fi- we magically find a solution, you know? Right. Not magically, but you know what I'm saying? Uh, just miraculously almost. But that I, I feel like that's the, you know, or I'm optimistic, I'll say. I'm not, like, making predictions. Yeah. But I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but I hope. I hope. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, my main point though was it won't look as bad. It'll never yeah. look like the shit in Blade Runner looks. That's right. that's how we, you know, hyperbolically as visionary yes. filmmakers and shit envision it to paint the picture of how fucked up society got. How do we visualize that? We make it dark and everything's rainy with acid rain and shit. But it, I don't know if whatever it, it might just look like Walmart's everywhere. But our society's worse than ever, you know, which a lot of people say the last four years was indicative of, but. Um, back to this movie itself, the voiceover thing, I thought it was interesting. I asked you, what's your favorite version of it? Because there are so many different cuts. And the only one that has voiceover is the original theatrical cut, which you said, even when you've watched the versions without voiceover, you still hear it in your head. So yeah, that first one made that impression on you. And I kind of felt the same way. And we went with this, the theatrical watching it again. I'm not sure it's better with it. I think everything he said in it, you kind of get if you're in it, you know, uh, informed. I read, I read that Ridley, sorry, informed, go ahead. No, well, it's just a sophisticated viewer films that you don't need that spelled out for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. You know. To that point, I, I read that Ridley actually was on board with the VO, but he wanted it to be more philosophical mm-hmm. and just, you know, kind of getting into the themes of it and stuff less than just like a play by play, which is what the studio wanted and ended up with, you know, that it kind of just helping you understand. And I I have to admit, you you know, some things were hard to track in it, like why he's going to a certain place and everything. And the VO helped bridge those gaps a bit and stuff. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why they put it in. And it was based on people's feedback to that effect. But um, I will have to say watching it this time again, as soon the first line of VO was jarring to me, Mm -hmm. like, I was I was getting steeped in the atmosphere and it kind of threw me back out of it. You know, every time the VO came on, it kind of took me out of feeling like I was it comes in, in late street or kind of. Yeah, it did come in later. But I, even throughout the movie, I had the same it, it had mm-hmm. the same effect on me that and I've seen the one without. I think I prefer without. I, I just like that. It's just moody and you're just there. And, you know, it's I don't know. It kind of took me out of it every time. It's part of the nostalgia factor for you, though, right? Like you said, yeah. it's inescapable, even if you watch the final cut. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I have no idea what I would have thought of the film watching it for the first time at a very young age without the voiceover. Might have been so hard. So it's like mm-hmm. that voiceover really may have helped me mm-hmm. grasp yeah. certain things about the film. Yeah. So it's like I can't yeah. undo my my impression mm-hmm. of it from that. It's like I, it would be so interesting if I could just see it now completely fresh, know yeah. nothing about like, the uh, film. Like Men, Men in Black, swipe your memory and watch it again. Yeah. yeah. Right. And now you are, of course, a sophisticated viewer, as I said, but as a kid, yeah, it helped to have that. Right. And it yeah. does lend it kind of a noir. Yeah. Philip Marlowe detective like voiceover. Yeah. Angle, so it feels kind of classical in that sense. you know. Yeah. I just maybe would have preferred the philosophical stuff, you know, than mm-hmm. the kind of just straightforward, you know. Uh, Do you approach. dig into the is Deckard a replicant or not theories at all? Have you? Uh, not really delved into that too much i would probably Someone... lean towards thinking that he's not now my cat's yeah. about to walk over the camera right. i was gonna ask you about that cat right. guest appearance <laughs> yeah. okay, nice it's <laughs> <laughs> perfect what's this cat's name again this is tilly Le Guin. stealing the spotlight yes. is that a reference that escapes me tilly leguin is that a is that my, oh, my i was gonna when I was ready to adopt a cat, I, I wanted to name my cat Le Guin, but um, she was a year and a half old when I got her, and her name was Tilly. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid she would be really confused. So I'm sure she's like, what's Tilly Le Guin? I'm sure she doesn't understand that. But most of the time, I 
call her Murphy or baby girl or little miss curious or something else. So <laughs> <whatever>. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, someone in the movie did ask Deckard if he'd run the test on himself. I forget which yeah, character. I think asked uh, him. Rachel does. It Rachel. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that at, at least introduced the idea in the movie, like bona fide for sure. But um, yeah, I agree. I tend to lean toward that he was a normal human. That just seems to make most sense. Yeah, well, and also because of like what they built the replicants for. And again, this is kind right. of my pessimism about humanity, but. They built them to be kind of the underclass and the people doing yeah. the work that they that nobody else wanted to do, kind of the disrespected work. And so I don't think they would have made a detective a replicant. It is such a powerful, interesting philosophical question Philip Dick was asking with this, you know, even just to the to the dream of electric sheep. Um, I never read it, but I know the script that got you into the independent filmmakers project and all that, right, was... The machine who loved was that an android right, thing yeah. similar to this or um i mean it was similar in the sense that i i like to think about you know if humans had the technology to create something that was so human-like that you couldn't tell it apart from other people you know what is that gray area in terms of how it behaves, what its rights are, various mm -hmm. things like that, which of course Blade Runner ties right into all of those sorts of things too. I find it very interesting to think about, you know, what is sentience? Why do humans not want to allow animals or other things to be sentient when it, if you have a pet, it's obvious that animals right. are sentient creatures. And it's like they could create something that's completely human in the case of Blade Runner, stronger smarter than human beings and they make them slaves mm. of various types i mean it's like such a statement really about the worst of human beings that yes. we can apply all of our creativity all of our intelligence make something incredible and we make slaves it's our fear it's chris and i always right. come back to human ego fear the fact that we're threatened by this thing we created because we know it's superior to us and we see how we treat things that we deem inferior to us, even each other based on idiotic superficial shit like race or gender, you know? Um, and we recognize that in ourselves and know that's like the worst aspect of ourselves, even almost subconsciously. And then human beings evolutionarily would be compelled then to subjugate that thing that is superior yeah. you know I mean? for however long you can but this also speaks to the like this the your humans i guess kind of won because it was just a handful but in the eventually the time's going to come we seem right around the corner from creating intelligence that's smarter than us you know robots that are stronger than us you know we're right we're pretty shitty that. it's not hard to make something better <laughs> than us i mean we're amazing yeah, creatures, no shit right we're pretty <laughs> shitty <This> is... <laughs> The opposable oh. thumbs thing that helped. Um, <laughs> I mean, the fact that we have nimble tongues and can communicate the way we do. I mean, those are things we think elevates us above. The Gave us an forms. edge over the animal kingdom. Yeah. But yeah, this next wave, yeah. we're going to be nothing compared to what we can create. And, and that is um, we're going to find out what happens if we uh, like Elon Musk called it summoning the demon creating artificial intelligence and his whole thing with Neuralink and all that is about like, we should, you know, join them before you can find out if you can beat them. You know what I mean? Like, and make ourselves as advanced as we can too. at the same time, we're like basically make it all indistinguishable. Um, but it's crazy that we are right there. It's, it's right around the corner. Where are you on that? You're going to get plugged in for a Neuralink <laughs> early adopter. I was just I thinking about that the other day. I think as I get older, I'll be more likely to is what I was just thinking this the other day that because as your hearing starts to go, your faculties start to fail and all that. But why the fuck not? Yeah, put it in. Let's fucking, you know, become, you know, gods. Like you're so 70, speak, get a you know, like link, try crack. Yeah, and then suddenly you can hear the mu all the music you want crystal clear in your own head or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, so maybe as I get older, I'll be more likely to embrace it just because like, why the fuck not i'm going to be dead soon anyway even if it does fuck me up or take me over or whatever you know but see, if, if they could create that level of technology that could do that then it's like why not just be able to give vision to people who lose their sight or give hearing to people who lose their ability to hear instead of having to become like part of the board yeah. or whatever mm -hmm, for you sure know? that's the first wave actually that's really what their first um 
you know, endeavor is to try and do things like that. Help. I think part of it too, is just communication and and how human language as intricate and detailed as it is, is still pretty inefficient. We always speak wrong. We don't say exactly what we mean. We fumble our words, we search for words. And sometimes there just aren't words to articulate something, you know, that I think the thought is with the neural link that we'll be able to just get it from each other. You know what I mean? But I don't, I mean, it sounds so ridiculous. I don't know. Right. Man, that would be insane. It would. Everyone's essentially psychic and hackable and it's it's crazy. It's opening a can of worms. And it's on a scale too. Like there are versions where they say it's, you know, not connected to anything else, but, um, you know, it, it comes installed with, say, everything on Wikipedia, for example, and you just know anything you need to know, you'll know. <laughs> but that's it. You know what I mean? And as far as uh, just kind of the matrix tele- telepathy or anything, it would be off the table in that scenario, mm-hmm. you know, which is a wild concept. And here's the other thing. That's what Elon's point is, just that eventually someone's going to do it. China, someone, you know, someone's going to develop the shit and you gotta, you gotta keep up or you're going to lose, you know, you, you're going to, the other people are going to know everything and you're going to be in no Kung Fu, like the matrix of shit and kick your ass, you know, but, uh, so to speak. It but is anyway, interesting that the Tyrell's like Tyrell in this film, right. And there's some talk that he's a replicant, that the yeah, real Tyrell is dead. And the one that they meet in that is a replicant. Um, I read they actually, I think they even filmed, uh, him uh it turning out that he was a replicant and that the real one had been dead for like four years or something and that they decided to change it at, you know yeah i read that there's rumors that it was filmed but there is supposedly definitely concept art out there of mm. a sarcophagus okay they, maybe not film right, yeah. yeah but yeah but, it uh, was at least uh you know which is interesting it was developed to a degree yeah but that's a whole different thing like the replicant thing is crazy because you plant these memories into somebody but does that mean that you could take your own memories and put it in a replicant and it's you? Not, no. You know what I mean? It's- See, I, that's a beef I have with a lot of these because I, I read a lot about this stuff like futurism and everything. And they talk about like these are ways that, we, you know, eventually you could achieve immortality because you'll be able to create a perfect copy of yourself. But I was like, that's not you. You know, you still die off. That's but there could be a point where, you know, from the start, they already have that set up but we're not no one in our generation or you know who is born like the way we are that you know you're not gonna anytime you create uh you even if you upload all your everything all your memories all that to a computer and then you die and that's put in another body that's not you anymore you know what i mean it's just a copy you could it's not like the you're transferring everything it's more that you're copying everything you mm-hmm. know what i mean i don't even think it would be possible though to copy everything i mean think about how fluid your memories are mm-hmm. and how sometimes a memory will suddenly come to you that wasn't there yeah a minute ago or a day ago well how could you upload that if it's not yeah. in your conscience and then it gets to the level of well if you can upload your subconscious but i mean that requires an understanding of the human brain right meshing well, technology that i don't really believe is going to happen the only way i see it could play out is that if if our if our consciousness is strictly a set of neurons in a certain you know mode you know physicality of it that you could copy that what our brain is at its current state however fucked up the memories are and wrong they are and all that stuff but it's like a one-off switch each neuron is a bit and then you know they add up to what's going on we're basically wetware computers and you could copy that the computer you know what i'm saying and Mm -hmm. the new version would have all the same flaws and everything that you're not really and our understanding of in neuroscience of memory i believe is like what you're saying it's not like it's actually memory banks we're recreating it every time you try and remember something you know accessing the little bits that are there but it's not like just this file you know so yeah that would be i know (laughs) i love this stuff though what was that if it's just your experiences like say those experiences are all successfully uploaded well, what about those experiences? You know, think about how multidimensional an experience is. Is every aspect of that even, would that be reproducible? So it's like, I don't think you could create a true reproduction of yourself based on trying to just save those memories because there's so much else that existed around it and the experience of having it and the experience of all the things that go through before it and after it 
It's like, I just think when you get to that level of memory and how it intersects with experience and how you evolve over time and change your thinking about what you experienced in the past, it's just, you couldn't duplicate that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could have a thing that has certain of your memories, but I don't see how it could be a thing that would be as complex and multidimensional as the original human who had That's those just human things. ego. <laughs> so do you think the replicants in the film aren't as complex as actual people? I think that, you know, they have these memories that they've been implanted with for whatever, for whatever that gives them. It gives them some basis of a background. I think they are as legitimate as people in the sense that they are continuing to build their own experiences and, and develop suffer and they can yeah. yeah so they're absolutely human in that sense their their memories aren't mm -hmm. they don't serve exactly the same foundation in their lives as ours do but they're living in the present and continuing to grow and develop in the present right and even if they're not exactly human they're as valid as a human yeah right. they would still have the same rights etc. as worthy yep not that we treat most humans as worthy, but uh, we're such a fucking mess. Chris used to say we're just apes who can't cope with our brains. I always thought that was a great way to sum it up. I mean, we're just a few evolutionary turns of dials from that, you know, and it's evident every yeah, day. The, <laughs> our, the structure of our brain is it it's the old stuff is still there. You know, we have the R complex all the way deep down, which is reptilian. And then stacked on top of that is the limbic system. On top of that is the neocortex. And they each suppress the one below, but it's all still there. You know, it's not like we just completely like got rid of the old stuff. It's just that we evolved ways to suppress all that, you know, which is. Do you think had you lived in the Blade Runner world, you would have been an activist for replicant rights? I, I think I would have been. Yeah. I would have liked and to have seen that in the movie. Like, actually, there is a quadrant of people who are like, this is wrong and shit. And so maybe even helping the replicants, you know? Yeah. I don't know if That's you guys ever do this, but sometimes, like, if I were to see a film like Blade Runner that I would get really obsessed with, you know, I would start daydreaming stories that took place in mm. that world. And that was one of the the common daydream stories that I had about Blade Runner was about the group who were trying to legitimize the, hum the human rights of the replicants, because I think that- Like an underground obvious. railroad could have been an interesting yeah. aspect in it. There was an interesting yeah. point where, you know, they referred to them as skin jobs in it. And uh, even the end, end uh, word was uh, dropped, uh, a bomb. I think Harrison Ford's character- In the voiceover. Right, said, uh, right, well, I think he said to someone that this is the same person. Yeah, you're right, it was a voiceover. He was saying this, this, kind, was about of, this the is cop. the kind of person, yeah. yeah, that in the 50s or whatever would have, you know, said, the n-word and now skin jobs would be the new so yeah if you had people fighting for their rights you know that could be one one of the ways that they go about it initially is like you know demonizing the word you know i mean maybe because there were supposedly only like four of them maybe on the right planet. it wasn't prevalent it enough, wasn't you know, you know but uh, by the way i think i might have messed that up i think it's the limbic this is like all our motor functions and the r complex on top of that just to, in case any nerds <laughs> out there want to correct me on that um not but new. yeah, that, have you seen in the news on that subject about uh, social movements and such? Have you seen just this week, Sean Young came out talking about Ridley Scott and stuff? Did you see I all that? See that? I read that piece. Yeah, that was interesting. So I'm not surprised. This... I mean, there's a, there's a whole group of actresses, um, you know, the other, Shelley Duvall, she came out recently. Mm -hmm. There was a piece about That's her. a tragic yeah, yeah i know that was shocking women you know suffered a great deal and had their careers thwarted in many ways um by dealing with certain men at the time which is such a shame what do you think along those lines of deckard essentially me tooing rachel in the film <laughs> he pulls a harvey weinstein he blocks the door he won't let her leave he shoves her yeah. back he, you know and then he eventually kind of turns it where he he forces he, he her least, to say it. Yes. And then she eventually says something on her own that she wants. Mm -hmm. so she's not just repeating his orders at that point. And then it kind of turns, but it starts gnarly, dude. Yeah. No, and yeah. you could argue, you could argue that she wanted, she didn't like, it was this, That's like she thing. secretly underneath it all wanted to be there, you know, because that seems to be the case in the end. 
but I agree. It's like, that's another way to get especially there. in today's context the idea of shutting the door on her and all that like that's just Mm-mm. like you can't go there <laughs> like when no. i do watch this with my son i'm gonna be like let's talk about this for a moment let me mm-hmm. pause this for a second because that's not how you go about this right at all no, yeah just wait till the next time you see her you know <laughs> right <laughs> that's all Visibility, like of these things in our consciousness of them that there are so many things and so many films now that it's like yeah, they need like a trigger warning or an explanation of of why that was okay to be put in a film at the time and and accepted as normal. You know, it was accepted as normal. Or at least which, after the fact, have conversations like this about it, if not, right. you know, framing it a certain way and everything. But it is interesting when you look back to that era. Well, you grew up watching this film. Did it ever hit you as wrong, that scene? Or was it later in life with all this social upheaval in regards to that stuff that you're like whoa 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 hit the brakes on that scene i've been thinking about a lot of this stuff a lot over the last few years as it's become more more part of the conversation and more part of people's consciousness and it's interesting because it's like the things that i personally experienced you know as a child as a teen as somebody in my 20s the kinds of sexism that you would see the kinds of misogyny it was all just so accepted. You know, it's like there wasn't the mentality of this really absolutely has to change right now. The understanding was, well, this is horrible. This is horrible, but this is how men behave. This is how patriarchy functions. And there was a level, a weird level of acceptance. It's like you just knew it. And I think back to like, I briefly was in film school back in like 89, 90. And I remember it being like, people just talked about it openly that the head of the film school was sexist. It was just like, people just talked about it, that he was sexist. And it's like, I did experience the consequences of that, but it's like, just that that could be talked about, like that he's labeled that everybody knows it. You're just supposed to deal with it. If you're a woman taking classes there, you're just screwed and you knew it. And there wasn't any recourse. And so for the longest time, we as women, there was no recourse Mm -hmm. and there just was no recourse. And in something that was relatively mild, like this is someone who we just knew was never going to take women filmmakers seriously. We weren't going to get opportunities in the school. But when you see the more extreme aspect of it, you know, with women who would report rapes and not be believed. It's like we knew at that level of in a school, there's no point in even bringing it up, you know, because if somebody who's experienced some horrible, violent act can't be taken seriously, we were nowhere close to talking about the kinds of misogyny that exists just in benign, quote unquote, benign. Right. Yeah, you even have cases in like in homes and stuff where a ki- uh, you know kid will tell their mom something's happening and and she'll refuse to believe it. So you know if your own mom won't believe you, you know society at large probably isn't. Yeah. And it's kind of uh, the macro and the micro of the same thing. It's like just uh, scared to confront it, not wanting to open that can of worms mm-hmm. and do the work and shit to fix it. Yeah. And, and it is funny with this scene Church. again, when you look back, especially in the early 80s, but I mean, even way back before that with, you know, you need to slap the woman like Sean Connery and shit to talk some sense into her, get a hold of yourself or whatever. But uh, I think of Body Heat all the time. That scene yeah. in Body Heat where he throws a fucking chair through a window to go in and ravish her or whatever. And that's yep. been regarded as one of the sexiest romantic scenes of all time and shit. It's like, What? Well, like in this movie in Blade Runner, there seems to be an element to it that context is kind of important because if it's like this smoldering tension where they both really want it and it's him shutting the door on her is is his way of saying, no, I really want you. I have to have you now. And she's into it. That's one thing. But if like it's this Harvey Weinstein situation where it's clear that she's not into it and he's doing that shit, it's a whole different thing, you know, so maybe there is some nuance to it. But a big difference between Harrison Ford and Harvey Weinstein. Exactly. I mean, that's really the bottom (laughs) line, I think. And that's not as big a difference as you think. But but the problem is some guys can't read, can't get that read. You know, they can't tell that the chick's not into it, I think, is what happens in some of these cases or don't care, you know. 
here's one thing i do want to say i've never operated that way just we were raised by women our dad took off when we were young and shit so it never occurred to us but we've like i said i'd be like okay i'll see you next time and you know see what happens i wouldn't even make the move anyway she'd have to close the door on me for anything to happen usually historically right yes anyway (laughs) and that ship has sailed but i do want to say on behalf of some men though that men as well have been conditioned by these stories because men have the pressure to make the move, go out on the limb, and they watch all these movies as well growing up. So they feel that's how you come on to a woman, really forcefully show her that you want her. And sometimes she means no, but she means yes. And all. It's so complicated that even young men, though, we can't just villainize and demonize them when they fuck up like this sometimes as well, you know? For me, that's why this, like the, the problem of patriarchy you know, I think some men think, oh, well, this is just women wanting some certain thing, but it's what people who really understand the problems with patriarchy understand is that it is systemic and it affects women and it affects men. It not only impedes women's progress, you know, in the workplace, it impedes male progress in in their emotional lives or in other aspects of their lives where they're told boys don't cry or whatever bullshit that they're Mm-hmm. So, you know, it definitely sets these very unrealistic ideas about what gender is and who you are and what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. And it's complete bullshit. And it's completely created by society in, in a way that's completely antiquated now. I mean, I could argue it was bullshit when it was invented, but I mean, it's truly completely irrelevant now. And really just the whole idea of gender binary gender what those things mean just needs to be abolished from society and how people talk i think we should just all call each other it (laughs) just like why do we use pronouns anyway (laughs) pronouns are fucked up anyway in general like the idea that we did that that's like the main way we distinguish ourselves in language is by whether you have this particular apparatus or not you know whatever and And use it a certain that's why we struggle with foreign languages even a fucking table's a male and a chair's a female and all they're like what the hell (laughs) can we just abandon that all he she her him imagine if there wasn't i mean why does there need and we were Why all just that? it's or that was or whatever. I mean, I think it stemmed from us just being simpler yeah. beings it, back in the day. And, sure. you know, we know where it the came ones from. who have penises, we call this. The ones who have yeah. vaginas, we call this. And, you know, and even some of the shit we talk about, the patriarchy, it, I think some of it is evolutionary. You know what I mean? And like Chris was saying, that's the reptilian, that's the art complex. That's the stuff, yeah. though, that now we should be enlightened enough to yeah. try and educate We're out of ourselves. now to, right, to deal with that. But I do think part of it is when somebody succumbs to that and they have a problem overcoming their evolutionary impulses, we need to handle it a little more delicately than just yeah. socially executing them. You know what I mean? It's, right. it's hard. I know people want to make examples. This behavior won't be tolerated. But at the same time, do you have to scorch the person who did it when uh, i mean there's arguments against free will as human beings you know what i mean if you really want to get crazy i'm not trying to get yeah. people how pro- free programmed you are and yeah like how much you're operating on that it's programming etc yeah exactly. we were programmed by these movies kids who grew up watching body heat and blade runner and then you know got too handsy in college or whatever the fuck i don't know i'm just saying it's a uh, it's all complex the answer, I think, is having conversations like this, using mm-hmm. a movie as a jumping off point, even to have social conversations, which is what we try and do here usually. But uh, I don't know. It's uh, The conversations have to be nuanced. They can't just be black and yeah. white, you know? Yeah. And it's and that's, works and torture. In the last four years, in one way, it's fantastic that so many things have come to the surface that are like, wow, these are the worst aspects of our society. They're all out there for everyone to see now and we can address them, which is great. And then the flip side is everything's become so divided into black and white that it can become really hard to have that deeply shades of gray conversation, Mm -hmm. which also needs to happen. So, Mm -hmm. And taking like mental illness into account, like take Roseanne for an example. Roseanne is on the books for decades as having all sorts of mental issues. So when a person says and does something dumb is that taken into account and it seems to be a lot very much politically motivated who gets a pass who doesn't because there are people who think murderers should be rehabilitated and have a second shot at life and you know which i agree personally 
But if you say the wrong thing on Twitter, you don't. But if you murder someone, you do. It's crazy to me. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely, this is definitely an era where it's very hard to communicate clearly. Um, right. We need Neuralinks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> We're all like tuned right into each other. Oh, okay. I get you now. <laughs> Look, he said some dumb shit, but he's not a racist. It's cool. How do you know? Neuralinked him, dude. It's cool. He's cool. <laughs> or reveal way more people are racist right. than you think, including yeah. all the people well, on Twitter burning Roseanne, you know? Yeah. I think that all does really come down to that R complex stuff, though. I think most of that stuff is rooted in just like this, like programming that arrived from a very hostile, you know, uh, evolution, not only of humanity, of all animals, you know, like we're trying to buck that again. Like I said, you know, like um, I think that's the thing, too, because you, you often hear arguments that you know, we're operating on these like Darwinian impulses, et cetera. But I, I, my response to that is we're, once you know that, then you can acknowledge it and try and correct for it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's where we're at right now as a civilization is how do we account for all these impulses and programming and everything we have and acknowledge it and move forward and evolve again, but consciously and even design our own society so that we're, you know, correcting for those things and checking for those things. But again, as Jay said, not doing it in this way where it's all like, you know, pitchforks and torches and just mm -hmm. like, you know, wanting to like um, just skewer people to at the same time, you know, like we, I think you need to educate people into. Right. I feel like we should all be trying to help that. each other be the best versions of ourselves we could be. Yes. And just being punitive and a mob mentality with pitchforks, like you said, doesn't do that. It, it kind of sweeps the problem under the rug. Oh, we right. just fucking sat, you know, boom, we sniped her, problem solved. Like, no, you didn't snipe anything. Well, on the one hand, it's interesting because then it's it's an instantaneous acknowledgement of like, oh, this was problematic behavior. Mm. Where once upon a time, it, that would have been swept under the rug. Right. So it's like, okay. yeah. so it is progress. It's messy progress. Right. Yeah. And things overcorrect and then you correct for that and all that too, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a process, which I mean, now sometimes... Sometimes it's still swinging between ignoring it and lashing out. Um, yeah. But I do think eventually as we have more conversations across society, across people on all different mm -hmm. kinds of topics that eventually well, it will right balance now. out. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and we'll yeah. figure out how to react to, you know, finding out somebody in, in a position at work had been a horrible person for 20 years and then figuring mm -hmm. out, you know, mm -hmm. how, do you how do you deal with that when you find out after the fact? So, and part of it is usually going to be deprogramming, deprogramming them because how did they arrive at being that shitty person? They had shitty yeah. parents, they had shitty inputs, uh, they had power mm -hmm. that corrupted them. You know, yeah, it's so. usually due to some factor that you know influenced them in that way. Yeah, it's very easy to moralize these things. Accepted. You know that What's they that? could get away with it. I said, and it was accepted; they could right. get away yeah. with it for a long yeah. period of time. So, yeah, it was enabled and accepted. Yeah. Have you switching gears a little bit? Have you seen Blade Runner twenty forty nine? I did see it when it came out. Um, I confess, I don't remember a ton about it. <laughs> right, no. I saw it too, and same. I remember a few, you know, key moments. But I've been meaning to watch it. I have it. It's been on my shelf, calling to me for years, and I tried to fit it in. But my life with a seven year old kid, and especially in the time of coronavirus, is fucked. As far as watching movies, it's partly why we started this. Was like. Hey, babe, I got to watch this movie for work. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I just know in my heart of heart, it's not going to be the same. No. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not my, my takeaway. Yeah. was, it's kind of, I mean, it was cool, you know, but it's not the same, like the practical effects, even, you know, just the, um, the mood, that the atmosphere, again, the, um, the end of, fact that's the other problem too that we're facing moving forward is that it like once one thing does it once you can't do it you can't repeat that like wow factor you know what i mean like when this came out it was like holy shit but now there's like a ton of shit with dystopian you know similar similar types of themes and vibes and stuff and right. it's like but the first time it hits the scene it's just like knocks people out of their seats and how do you recreate that you know? and the great thing about this though is it holds up I mean, it might have problematic issues, but just as a whole, mm -hmm. it holds up as a masterpiece. I was surprised Whereas, how well it did. Yeah. When you hear about, like, I remember uh, Jim Morrison years ago, I was 
when a door is kicking, he had said this thing, what he would do is he'd find an author he liked, and then he would find out who their influences were and read them and then find their influences until he got back to the Greeks, essentially. And you kind of see this storytelling lineage, you know, and say if you would read Kerouac or somebody, which is one of the authors he had started digging into, which led him back. You could see how Kerouac was revolutionary, but when you read it now, you're like, eh, you know what I mean? Not the case with Blade Runner. This shit was revolutionary, inspired a ton of imitators, but still is better than all the imitators. You know what I mean? In fact, you know, I just watched it again last night and this morning continuing. But uh, I was I was surprised because I actually kind of in my mind's eye was thinking it would be less impressive, you know, because of its age and everything. But watching it again, I was like, wow, this is actually, I mean, in many ways, like more convincing than current cgi type stuff and everything you know that like those pyramids and shit you know which actually here's another little uh tidbit um i had read that those pyramids were about nine feet wide models and they were painted black and they were like plexiglass or something and they etched out all the windows and shit and shown a bright light from inside and it was so hot the light that they melted or one of them at least melted eventually (laughs) but uh that shit's just so cool. It's so much cooler than just doing this CGI pyramid, you know, and, and, and I'll say about that too, like the vision. Yes. I think that's another thing about this is like those, when it first kicks in and all those, like, uh, it's almost like refinery, like just flames and plumes coming out of the city. And, and again, the pyramid shit. And when they met with Sean Young and the owl and, you know, the, the, the view there with the sunset coming down, it, it just was like, it's just, yeah. Like it's, it's like music or something where it's like they just they you know uh to quote wonder boys reached up into style heaven and pulled this shit down you know just there's something to that that like everything now not everything but you just it's it's so widespread now that everything seems to be derivative of Mm -hmm. that vision you know it's more like people emulating that versus coming with their own unique thunder you know Mm -hmm. Part of it too is and people we say Jay talks too much. <laughs> this is what happens when I take a backseat. We'd love you to talk as much as you want. Don't let us mansplain to you the whole episode and shit. But uh, um, the practical effects thing to me is huge. CGI to me, there's just something dead about it. It's that uncanny valley thing. There's no way a CGI film is going to be as good. And when he went to do a lot of these recuts, there was some shit that he added in. He actually did a little bit of reshooting on, I think, the final cut, maybe. It came out in, like, 2007. But he insisted it all be practical. You know, he didn't want to be like Lucas, where they nice. put him at CGI Job of the Hut, and it looked like shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Smart. Because it is... I mean, the funny thing is, I looked up the budget for this film, and it was $30 million. And I was like, what's $30 million in $1982 to today? $80 million. They'll spend two hundred million to make a shittier CGI version than eighty million to make a practical effects version, which I get. It's just easier for everyone involved. Hey, let's just do it all on these little computers and outsource it to fucking Indonesia or whatever. You know what I mean? But first, having warehouses full of melting pyramids and shit, I get it. But the movies just suffer. <clears throat> Jay and I had a meeting in the warehouse where they shot a lot of this. It turned into I forget what the name of the company. Um, I think it was motion, motion, theory. motion theory. Yeah, um, that was kind of just cool. It felt like a cathedral or something. You know? And uh, we also had a couple meetings at Scott Free, uh, the uh, Scott Brothers production company, and we saw Ridley Scott traded nods with him, respectful nods, you know, as he walked by. But we had meetings with his execs. You know, it's funny because I'm like a big dude and like six feet tall and he's just a titan but you see him he's this diminutive little dude oh. you know what i mean yeah, like, that's really an like old dude over there shit <laughs> feels weird but he's still wanna, exuded uh, speaking of hollywood do you uh, want to touch on it all first off your transition from screenwriting into being a novelist which is something we've advocated for years and we wrote our own novels but we're lazy and we just stuck them on fucking amazon and haven't done shit for marketing or anything you went more the Working traditional on. route, but uh, yeah, if you just want to talk about the ups, the downs, the motivation. Yeah, I mean, I've been pursuing, you know, I had a dream of being a writer, director, kind of an indie filmmaker for decades. That was my dream. And 
between the years like 2009 and 2012, I, like I was having a lot of health problems and I was also like getting older. I wasn't in my 20s anymore. I was not in my 30s anymore. Feel and I'll drink to that. it started to dawn on me like a couple things. One, that that physically, if I had the chance to, you know, direct a film and I had to be on set for 16 hours at a time, I was going to destroy my health and I probably couldn't do it. And the other thing that really started to become apparent to me um, for a while, like probably around 2008, 2009, I was doing this blog called Alice in Action Land and it was about film and feminism. And at some point, like I really saw so clearly that you know, even at that point, if I had started to be able to make the body of work I wanted to make at 40 or 45, that I was never, in fact, going to have a body of work, not the way male filmmakers have a body of work. And it's like I could think of individ individual women who at that time had maybe directed a film or two, but they didn't get these kind of repeat opportunities that men got. And I realized I'm, if I continue with film, I will never have a body of work. So I kind of gave 2012, because that was another year I was having health problems. I was like, this is going to be my last year even thinking about doing anything in film. So it was kind of a transition year. And I'm like, then I really need to, I really need to figure out how to write a novel. And I'd been really intimidated about approaching writing novels for a long time. So I went to it reluctantly. Um, but then at some point, I really came to realize that I can take all of the things that I was learning in terms of being an independent filmmaker, because I, I wore so many hats by myself, that you know when you're writing a novel, you are the writer, but you are the director you're the cinematographer, you're the production yes. designer, you're the editor, you're the actors. You, I mean, there are a lot of transferable elements from wanting to be a do-it-yourself filmmaker to writing a novel. And once I saw it that way, I felt much more comfortable of like, okay, I haven't completely abandoned my artistic knowledge, you know, that there's still or a wasted place. all those years. Yeah, yeah. right. Another yeah. thing that's cool about prose is that it's sort of this participatory um, mutual uh, sort of creating a vision with the reader because you have to, it's your job to describe everything in a way that they are then the director and they have to produce the actual visuals in their mind or, you know what I mean? They have to cast it. They have to uh, picture the scenery, all that stuff. So I, that excites me, like as a reader too, you know, as I, when I read novels and stuff, you know, like being the director in your head is, is fun. So if you can conjure that in a reader, you know, then, then you cast it, et cetera. Yeah. And you just don't got to deal with a bunch of fucking dummies no and doubt. assholes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best thing about it. What's the your collaborative process? aspect of filmmaking is not to me at all a yeah. feature. That's a flaw. No. Like we try. Yes. And, it's like our mission at, in, if, as much as we will continue to pursue filmmaking is to see how you could suck the collaboration out of it as much as possible. You know what I mean? Like, oof. Yeah. It's pure undistilled vision, you know, uh, from the creator to the the recipient, but uh, what's your process? Like, how, like your writing process and everything, do you get up in the morning and just crank away or like, how, how do you actually approach it? Well, I hate to say this, but for the last year, I have not been doing a lot of writing during the pandemic. Like my energy has been very, Kind of all over the place. I think part of it is because, um, you know, to really embark on writing a first draft the way I write a first draft, I, I'm a pantser. So I just like sit down and write and I have certain ideas, but I'm kind of making it up as I go along. So I know when I write a first draft, I'm going to have to work at least six days a week, certain number of hours every day for some number of months. And I know like every day is going to look the same. And there's something about this time in the pandemic and having been home alone for so long that it's like, I don't want to commit to having to do something exactly the same way every single day. So I've not been doing a ton of work this year. Um, ordinarily, what my process would be, would be to work really hard and fast on a first draft. And typically I would write a first draft in about three months or so. It might be a mess, but that's okay. Um, and then at some time later, go back and rework it 
But I've got a first draft I started, I don't know, like eight months ago. And I keep like, I'll work on it for a few weeks and then take a month off and then work a few more weeks. And and it's like, I never used to do this, but. Do you think it's purely the pandemic thing? Or do you think there's any chance maybe you feel subconsciously you're working on the wrong story or any of that kind of shit? Because I've found when I've started on projects, a lot of times it's like, maybe it's just not the one that I need to be working on at that moment, you know? Yeah, I don't think it's that. I think it's, there were a couple of things that happened that were just huge changes simultaneously, which was March of 2020. And simultaneously, we went into this, you know, pandemic shutdown, and I moved into my first house. And since then, it's just my, I never had a routine. I never had a writing routine in this house. It would have been different if I'd moved into the house and been working and doing my stuff. And then the pandemic happened, Mm. but that's not what happened. So I have found um, just for whatever reason, last year, I prefer to do nonverbal things. Like, I just, like, I don't want to intensively. So, um, Oops. Yeah. Yeah, why aren't we tap dancing? That's like what I do. We need a fucking Neuralink, man. We could podcast without speaking. No shit. It'd be like three seconds. Okay, (laughs) see you next time. She's awesome. Peace. Uh, Downloaded. (laughs) Yeah, they're going to fuck baby teeth Uh, up. Bye. Uh, do you want to touch on that at all? I don't know how much time we have left. I haven't looked at the clock for what the baby teeth, how Hollywood. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't yeah, have to yeah. get into specifics, but just I, as a novelist. Really shortly. So you've read Baby Teeth. Yes. You know, it is about, you know, a young girl who is selectively mute and she's in this tug of war relationship with her mom. Um, they're, you know, partly over the love for the dad slash husband and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And the parents start to feel they're, daughter might be seriously mentally ill. Okay, so that's the book, right? The movie, as it exists right now in screenplay format, is about a brain-damaged girl who is possessed by the vengeful spirit of her dead grandmother. Why do they do this? Just go tell that story. Don't fucking, we talked about the low dweller with Adam Barker, our buddy, how that was like a formative script for us. And they took it and it became out of the furnace the Scott Cooper movie that bears no resemblance to the low dwellers. So now the low dwellers dead. So out of the furnace exists, like it's yeah. a true baby teeth adaptation would be dead. So this fucking monstrosity exists. It's infuriating. It is infuriating. I mean, it's like, did anybody actually read the book? And clearly like if they actually went ahead and made a movie based on this script, I am going to absolutely insist that the credit be inspired by the book, mm-hmm. baby teeth, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Cause otherwise you know, the fans of Baby Teeth are going to, I'm afraid, like, I'm going to get 100,000. Yeah. Right. Stephen King with yeah. the Lawnmower Man, you know, that one, Jay and I reviewed that, but it, it was uh, <laughs> about this, like, pan dude, like, low, mowing lawns and, like, you know, killing people for sa- animals in the yards and then the customer for sacrifice and all this shit. And then they made a movie and it was this, like, virtual reality thing and shit, <laughs> like, nothing to do with the fucking Zero story. And he, he sued to get his name taken off of it. Yeah. Do you, was there a point as you were licensing the rights and everything, which is another thing, all filmmakers out there, another great boon in writing prose is you retain copyright. In Hollywood, you sell your fucking soul when you sell a script. Yeah. But was there a point at all where you petitioned to write the script? Or did you have any interest in adapting it yourself since you have that skill set? Or did you just want to keep writing books? I went into it very chill at the time, like just super chill. You know, I was not looking to get back into film, especially mm-hmm. since like baby teeth had just happened and yeah, it was like, like Fuck, man. Great. I was I, not looking I, I to go backwards. So I was just like, hey, you know, I'm here. You know, if you ever want to consult with me, I'm here to help. You know, I tried to make it sound like I was available, but I didn't want to step mm-hmm. on anybody's toes, but they didn't consult me at all, mm-hmm. obviously. So. <sighs> Man, how you, surreal is that going to be watching that when it comes out for you? <laughs> you don't even want to watch it. Let's get a bottle of wine and some fucking quaaludes and hate watch it. It'll be fun. Let's watch it together. We'll review it. Let's review it. Yeah, let's do an episode of review it. That'd be amazing. Cinephiliacs episode. Um, again, this buzzer is rude. Don't know when it's coming, but I know it's breathing on our necks at some point. Um, we have been in this development is- hell in Hollywood for fucking ever. And dealt with all the dumb notes and uh, seeing a story that we pitched successfully come out after three drafts to be a completely different fucking thing. 
how is it with publishing editors? Is it pretty much are they are there as advocates to help you tell your story better, or are they trying to get you to tell a marketable, saleable story, or what? You know, I mean, it's different your from editor. Um, Baby Teeth, I had no editorial notes, really. I mean, Amazing. the book that was published is almost exactly the book I delivered. Um, Getaway that I'm currently working on is a little bit different, but that was partly because the draft that I was showing was a very, very early draft. Mm -hmm. I mean, keep in mind when you're getting your first agent, you're submitting a very finished project. Right. And then after right. you have an agent, You've you know, people are looking at your drafts. Mm -hmm. So, um, does it seem which actually that, might, does it seem that they get that, or are they kind of like I don't know? It's like she lost the magic. Yeah. No, no. I mean, they understand the process. There are definitely editors who really get that. There are some people who may not get it. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it, in that sense, it really helped to work with my current editor for Getaway. Is there were certain elements. <laughs>